the Anesthesia Podcast. Hi, uh, good afternoon, evening, morning, wherever you are in the world, uh, and welcome to uh, an Anesthesia Journal uh, sponsored live webinar via Twitter. Uh, thanks to one of our clever editors, Mike Charlesworth, who sorted all this out for us. Uh, this is to introduce and to highlight our new supplement uh, on the brain, which was uh, published uh, Monday of this week. It's free, uh, open access, some high quality, excellent articles. And we just thought we'd take the opportunity to discuss some of the articles themselves, some of the themes running through them. Uh, and we're going to do this with the group of the four editors who are most involved uh, with the production of the supplement. I'm very pleased to introduce our two guest editors who uh, helped us and were key to the production of this supplement. Um, we've got Professor uh, Alana Flexman, who's a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia and an anaesthetist at St Paul's Hospital. She's president-elect for the Society of Neuroscience in Anesthesiology and Critical Care, and is a very active researcher. So uh, welcome, Alana, and thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, next time... Next to we have uh, Dr. Joe Jesse, who is well known throughout the UK anaesthetic community for her outstanding work with the care of uh, uh, surgery and the older patients. Uh, she's a geriatrician and deputy director of the Centre for Perioperative Care and vice president of the British Geriatric Society. So it's great to have you on board this evening. Uh, we also have Ian Moppet, who's uh, in a very dark place, um, just geographically, not mentally or physically, we're, we're glad to say. Um, he's a, a professor of anaesthesia at the University of Nottingham and uh, also an editor of the journal. Uh, and I'm Matt Wiles, I'm one of the uh, journal editors and I work as uh, an anaesthetist covering neuroanesthesia and neuroconstructive care in Sheffield in the UK. So that's the team. Um, and we're just gonna have a, a gentle chat through some of the topics we have, just to try to highlight some of the themes we thought that might be of interest to you. Um, as I said, they're all freely available via the website or via our Twitter feed. Uh, so please do click on and see. Um, so to start off, maybe um, Jugdeep and Ian, it seems like um, uh, one theme that was in several of the, uh, the papers that we looked at was um, the management and recognition um, of delirium. Um, why is this such an important thing at the moment? Why is this such a hot topic in anesthetic, in anesthetic research? Um, so, um, go on, Drake <laughs> So, both itching to get started. Um, so, you know, we think that this is a, a really hot topic in perioperative care at the moment, because of course it's probably the most common post-operative complication that we encounter both after emergency surgery and after elective surgery. Um, and of course, it's also become really topical during COVID times these last two years, um, as shown really nicely in the article by Tom Jackson and colleagues, showing you know, the really high prevalence of delirium during COVID, when people who maybe don't encounter delirium in normal settings have suddenly been able having to look after patients with delirium in the context of COVID. So I think, you know, it's something that everyone's become much, much more aware of um, and um, encountering in their clinical work day to day. But I think you know, it's also raised lots and lots of questions for us um, around how do we screen patients for um, being at risk of delirium? How do we then try to prevent delirium? Um, how do we manage it better, both intraoperatively and postoperatively? And what kinds of longer term um, factors should we be considering when we're looking after these patients? 
And so those are little kind of teasers of the kinds of things that we could discuss at length, really. Um, but I'm going to let uh, Ian add any other kind of general insights before going into the detail of those. Yeah, thanks, Jodine. I think, I suppose in a way, one thing for me is that it's getting away from perhaps what I was taught and a phrase that we often still hear of the pleasantly confused patients um, and actually getting across yeah, to us all in our clinical practice, wherever that is, that um, delirium is a, as you say, it's a common complication associated with surgery and anaesthesia, but it's um, it's not pleasant. And it's not pleasant for the patient, it's not pleasant for their families, it's not pleasant for other patients and the staff on the ward. And um, if there are things that we can do, um, which make that either happen less often or make that experience not as bad as it was, and whether that's before they get to theatre, in theatre, after they go to back to the ward, all those that, that sort of joined up bit, which I think is one of the things that comes through in this in the in all the articles, that joined up aspects of care. Um, then you know it's something which we're making difference to, and it's sort of if even if nothing else, at the humanitarian level, just that, that individual patient that you know what is often an awful experience of delirium, making that a, a not so bad experience. And I'm going to turn my lights back on for my car off in the car, so I'll just shut up for a second. <laughs> Just to pick up on that, Ian, actually, um, and uh, Jagdeep, your article is really excellent, the editorial, is that I think that delirium really highlights the evolution of anesthesia care towards being a lot more multidisciplinary. So having you here as a geriatric specialist, is that's the key part, is us learning from our colleagues who have so much to offer and, and kind of crossing over between our specialties. And also... Um, anesthesia moving to be more of a perioperative specialty that encompasses the broader range of the um, patient's recovery. So typically, you know, we do an OR case, we may not even know our patient became delirious unless we're following them for pain management or something else. And so I think this is, this really highlights how we're starting to embrace the, the sort of longer term, even short term uh, trajectory of the patient and how we can influence that even before they start even preoperatively, as Ian said. So yeah, great to learn from um, you as a colleague in a different discipline. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, Matt, in terms of kind of the article also by Liz Everett and the team as well, around how long it's taken us to reach consensus on actually naming these things, what they should be named, um, so that we're really using that expertise from across specialties to make sure that we're consistent in the definitions that we use, which then allows us to be able to identify those issues properly and then manage them in the most evidence-based way as well. So it's really kind of, you know, that's what's so nice about the issue is how it all pulls all of those things together. Yeah, I, I, I thought that need for good definition was key. And it also um, it came back maybe sort of 15, 20 years ago when we recognised that pain was the fifth vital sign that needed to be um, we can't you can't manage uncontrolled pain unless you measure it and assess it. And in many ways, that's that's exactly the same with um, uh, acute delirium. Um, just because we don't know it's happening it often is. And I think um, a lot of us in anesthesia are very guilty at um, focusing very heavily on our two hour window that we have with the patient. And that's a really small period of time for that patient's surgical journey. It's tiny um, and, and often whatever we do in that two-hour window doesn't really seem to make a difference. It's the, it's the time either side. I'm just thinking about that. As a geriatrician, you can speak freely. You're, you're very much amongst friends here. 
what do we get wrong? What's what what are the things you could you know if you could say to a group of anesthetists, which you probably have in your audience today, please stop doing these things because you know yeah, yeah. these are the biggest problems we have. Theatres is just a terrible place to manage any of these things, aren't they? Brightly lit, noisy. Not nothing we do is good. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't think that they're lessons specifically just for kind of anaesthesia. I think they're for all of us working in healthcare. And I think you really picked that up there that, you know, surgery is a tiny, you know, one of my colleagues talks about surgery being a punctuation in the patient's longer term kind of health journey. And that's the way that we need to think about this is that this isn't about it being specialty based medicine. And that's what we need to move away from towards patient-centered kind of medicine and the right people coming along the pathway when the patient needs them. So if we're doing pre-op assessment and optimization for a complex patient, you may need a different healthcare professional to a general pre-op assessment clinic. Um, and then similarly in the post-operative period, traditionally, of course, our surgical surgeons and surgical teams look after patients, but they don't always have the expertise in managing medical complications the rehab and the discharge planning, and then linking in with community services to get the best possible patient reported outcomes. So I think it, I think that's one of the failings of our healthcare systems at the moment is that they're so specialty based that we don't end up providing patients with the holistic care that they require throughout that journey, whether it's perioperative or whether it's perimedicine. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest things. And I think the other thing that that really shows is that single interventions don't work and we really need to move away from this. There isn't going to be that magic bullet, as we discussed in the editorials and has come up in some of the other articles. You know, one drug isn't going to sort this out. One way of assessing a patient using a particular technology isn't going to necessarily be the answer. It's about how we use those different expertises and approaches to be able to develop those multi-component interventions. And I think that came across very well in the article by Dan Stubbs on um, chronic subdural hematoma, because yeah, I, I mainly do neuroanesthesia, and this is a this is a, a bread and butter operation. Um, but I also do a lot of trauma anesthesia, and it's very it's very marked seeing the difference between the pathways we have for our patients with proximal femoral fracture and the review they get. And largely, it seems to me anyway, the identical population, but instead of falling and fracturing their hip, they hit their head. And yet, I think certainly in neurosciences, we're a long way behind um, orthopedics for once, you know, with, the, with some excellent orthogeriatric services who give that whole holistic um, care because often patients have fallen for a reason. And our orthogeriatricians are incredibly clever at, well, usually stopping all the bad things and starting all the good things during one admission. And sometimes we, we, um, it seems like subdural hematoma can be managed a little bit surgically. I also think it, to pick up on that as well with the um, the review on perioperative EEG monitoring and cerebellic symmetry, it's kind of a similar thread in that it's um, it, we're not going to have one number likely or one monitor that's what we're going to fix. And then we're going to have better outcomes in our patients. It's really going to be a package of interventions. Um, and while we might use monitors to guide us, it's clear from that literature that there's some limitations and just using, you know, cerebellic symmetry isn't going to fix all perioperative uh, stroke or ischemia um, and uh, fix all our cognitive outcomes after surgery. And often, um, and this is where I've, I think we've learned and can learn more from our geriatric colleagues is around these packaged, um, you know, these other interventions for delirium or for cognitive dysfunction that are not the, you know, the, the, um, 
interest more, maybe more interesting, like monitor that you put on the patient's forehead, but there are things like having their family member come into the hospital or having, you know, having their sleep regulated. I actually, we work with internal medicine specialists at our hospital quite a bit on perioperative medicine. And they, one of them told me they actually do order warm milk for their patients on the ward there, which for, for a sleep um, which I thought was amazing. I've never done that myself. So um, it just shows you that there's a lot to be learned from these other types of interventions that are maybe less technology focused, but maybe more package and holistic for the patient's well-being, I think is what we're all probably advocating for here. Yeah. And I think the um, one of the other things there is that is that interesting, almost dissonance that when we get into theater, you know, this is we are we're obsessed with gadgets, with getting exactly the right drug dose, with you know all the monitoring. Um, but then we, in the pre-op phase and then the post-op phase, we sort of, you know, let's face it, what do we write on the back of our anaesthetic charts? Um, uh, usual obs back to ward, and um, that obsession with getting every detail right. Um, you know, maybe it's time, you know, uh, you know, that we look up. A little bit away from our monitors, away from um, you know the minutiae of ventilation. Not that's not that's not, not that it's not important, but actually, you know, if we're going to get the best outcomes for our patients, um, you know, whether that's older ones or younger ones, it doesn't matter. Um, we need, we need to start thinking about you know what is the you know even things you know everyone's got issues with staffing across the world in healthcare. If there aren't enough nurses on the ward to look after our postdoc patients, well and to be able to, to manage their toilets and so forth. And actually, you know, us worrying about whether we give them propofol or thiopentone or whatever other drug it might be, isn't going to make really a fat lot of difference. Yeah. I think, Ian, that's right. There's about kind of upskilling the whole of the workforce, really, isn't it? To be able to recognise issues and then deliver the care that's actually required throughout that pathway. And all of us recognising that we've got a role to play within that. And of course, it's really important to use our expertise in the right areas. But actually, there's also nothing stopping us giving people a glass of water and making sure that their glasses are around and that they've got access to their hearing aids, they've got batteries in them. And all of those kind of little things that actually we know make a massive difference. And certainly Sharon and Yui's work using those kind of very basic, you know, getting the basics right type approach and the help model has shown us that this can reduce the incidence, severity, duration and longer term impact of syndromes such as delirium with tiny numbers needed to treat, you know, NNTs of six from her latest work, uh, particularly where they have used um, patients, families and carers to come in and support nursing staff to be able to deliver those interventions. And of course, that's where, you know, Tom's article has really shown um, that how COVID has impacted so kind of profoundly for nurses at the moment because of that lack of, um, you know, the workforce from patients, families and carers in a way who are previously coming in and supporting their loved ones on the wards and now not being able to do that. Um, so, you know, this has had a, a massive impact in these last two years, hasn't it, on the whole of the workforce in lots of different ways. Absolutely. And so, so just moving on sort of um, and taking the point you raised about outcomes and uh, just uh, I really enjoyed your editorial, uh, Alana, and your previous what you've done looking at sort of where we're looking uh, in terms of research outcomes, because you know, we've got a lot of reviews in this article um, and a lot of evidence cited. Um, and I, I think you summarise things really well in terms of 
um, often the, the devil's in the detail in terms of what we determine. I mean, so what what should we be doing going forward, particularly in neurological and brain related research? Um, uh, what are the right outcomes that we should, you know, when, when we're looking at grant studies and recommending papers for acceptance, uh, what are the yeah. optimal ones? It was, it was really interesting to read all the reviews and it was a common theme amongst many of the authors that um, although there's, there's generally a body of evidence around whatever the topic is, whether it's anesthetic modality for stroke or, or the cerebral uh, monitoring techniques, um, at the end of the day, um, there's usually identified to be a gap in our understanding of how these interventions or these various, um, the, whether they actually result in long-term or functional outcomes. And I do understand that, that um, you know, I think that's an evolution of research in general over time that we're seeing towards more patient-reported outcomes. And I think now clinical trials, when they come up um, if in the future, they're going to have to require some of these patient-reported outcomes and in a longer time frame. So so no longer are we just going to be looking at, you know, till discharge and then we that's the end of it. We don't look at the patient's outcome after that. I think now it's we're beholden to actually look at what the patient's long term outcome is, whether that's months later or, or even years later, ideally. But there's some limitations on a practical basis for following everybody up. Um, and I think but that is balanced. And this was um, highlighted as well in some of the reviews that. We also need some standardization of outcomes so that we can compare literature um, like trials to other trials. And in some ways, we have some very robust outcomes like the Rankin, modified Rankin scale, for example, that's very standard. It's used in many trials. And that's actually a great asset because it allows us to compare the outcomes much more clearly between two different interventions in two different trials. Um, but that said, now I think the future is that we have to probably find ways to standardize neurologic outcomes or neurologic functional outcomes, take that a step further, um, and then be able to compare that between trials. I don't think we'll ever lose those standardized traditional outcomes, but I think we need to supplement them now with um, longer term and more patient focused functional outcomes because the, the Rankin scale doesn't necessarily identify exactly how that patient's functioning day to day, um, you know, socially with their family. It may, if there's a big deficit, yes, but it, you know, there may be deficits that the patient thinks are important. Like, can they return to work functionally um, or are they performing at work to the same degree? They, that may not discern those kind of details. So I think that's hopefully the future. I think I already see a shift in the types of studies that we're seeing for review. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting that how, when you actually look at them objectively, as you did, um, how little real patient focus there is. So, it's, you know, for example, a traumatic brain injury and extended Glasgow outcome score is, yeah. is very sort of almost um, care-based, as in uh, it's a measure of dependency. It's not yeah. really a measure of quality of life. There's no sort of um, uh, measures of depression or, or, or stuff outside basic needs, ability to work, yeah. ability to exercise, ability to return to hobbies. It was... It's um, which I, I guess when they're first created, there's a need for simplification. But you think now we need we need to look deeper and not necessarily rip them up, but certainly supplement them uh, yeah. to a much greater degree. 
And I think too, we tend to start with us. And that's, I think, just in human nature. We look at it from our lens. So we start with what do I think is important for you? And sure, function's important. So I'm going to add these variables, but maybe we should be backing it up as I see happening um, in the anesthesia literature, certainly. It's like, let's start with the patient. Say what, what actually does matter to you in a year after you have your surgery or your stroke or whatever it is. What is the key thing? And then start with that a little more um, at the beginning rather than at the end. So, Ian, wearing your other hat of NIHR and NIAA overlord, what do what do we need to put into our grants then, um, in, in in order to make these make these outcomes? Can we ask you for follow up for two years, three years? How, how long do we need to go to make sure we're getting patient centred and truly important outcomes? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um... I think there's probably a few answers to that question. Um, one is that, so for some illness, some some conditions, we know that patients, yeah, there is a there's a, a window when people plateau, as in their, their recovery has got to what it's got to. So um, you can probably argue, you know, clearly I have a particular interest in people with hip fractures that outcomes at five years probably aren't aren't going to be changed by what we do. We know that basically people rejoin their trajectory after after at most probably about two years. But it's actually, in terms of, of quality of life, it appears to, appears to plateau around four months. So we don't necessarily need to, to go out to really, really long-term outcomes. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, as I think we're all on the, the same page with this. We need to actually be starting to ask the, que- the, the, the starting point for the question is, what's going to matter to the, the patient group that I'm looking after? And um, it's interesting, obviously it's not in our supplement, but you know, there's been a couple of papers out in, in the hip fracture literature around um, mode of anesthesia, and they've been criticised partly for saying but the outcome was too remote from mode of anesthesia. The Regain study looked at, at death and the ability to walk at you know, many, many, um, you know, a couple of months afterwards, and people said that's too remote. But actually, we can certainly ask the question, well, actually, maybe that matters to the patient, and actually, and whether their blood pressure is above or below a certain value for an hour and a half while they're having their, their hip fixed may not matter. Um, or, you know, and certainly isn't, it's certainly not what, what patients go home saying, oh, I, if only my blood pressure had been above 75 um, or my hemoglobin had been above 90 or some other, they want to know, you know, are they getting home? So I think studies without something which is patient-centered can at best only be efficacy. Um, you know, evidence that something might work. There's a there's a reason to do this, but then we do need to be going to looking at, um, you know, if, if we think about you know all the stuff to do with the, with where anesthesia affects the patient's or, or might affect the patient's brain in some way, then you know, uh, finding out from the patients what that means, um, and that you know the the, the history of POCD or or what is what used to be post-operative chronic dysfunction has now changed its name. It's classic where we've we've operationalized it. We've made it into a scientific definition based on on Z scores and all those other things which people can look up. And people have forgotten to actually ask the patient, "What's the difference in your level of functioning for you?" Um, uh, and thankfully, we're now going back to things where where the where the definitions are based on what the patient can do and what the patient and their relatives perceive. Um, so that's a long answer. Uh, just put the right things in the right application. Um, but yeah, they need to be patient-centered, uh, all very strongly justified as to why this is just a, a study of mechanism. But I suppose, Ian, in some ways, that kind of may reflect back on that previous conversation about, um, you know, as 
kind of anesthesia moves out of theatre to look at the whole of the perioperative pathway, then you end up changing your focus from physiological parameters, which you're so involved in in theatre, to looking at those other parameters that affect people before and after surgery. So that kind of cultural shift may occur as people start to broaden their clinical remit as well through the advent of kind of perioperative care. So I think that might be one kind of cultural change that's required to be able to facilitate that. And I think the other thing which is really interesting about the data is um, also making sure that we're gathering data on people who don't proceed with surgery. Because, of course, that's going to you know, give us a, a very different kind of comparator. And that's often what people want to also know about is what will happen if I don't do this. And we're not good at collecting that data at all. Um, you know, certainly we're getting there now, particularly in the abdominal aortic aneurysm groups and some of the other groups. But it's not routinely collected. And until we have that, it's really hard to do proper shared decision making around perioperative cognitive disorders or any other perioperative outcomes with patients as well. So I think there's kind of interesting kind of themes that come out of that. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I, I think there is a forgotten tribe of, uh, particularly for chronic subdural hematoma. Yeah. Most patients do not have an operation. They do not come to the big neurosciences centre. They stay at their base hospital and are managed, but they're unseen by uh, a lot of the research and, and certainly a lot of the surgical view and to follow their trajectory and actually do the two groups actually meet? Is it is it a case of, we, we just don't know. It might be that surgery, you know, does have a significant step improvement or maybe it just moves you forward a few weeks and actually you end up, it, it's, yeah, I think that's a fascinating area. More, you know, something like a snack I'm, water. Matt, I'm looking forward to the first paper that comes out in anesthesia, which is written by anesthetists about patients who didn't have an anesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to take I'm going to take that challenge on now, Ian. I've got to do it. Um, Alana, I just want to take the opportunity. Um, uh, to, to, I always like to steal advice from um, uh, from across the Atlantic about about thrombectomy, which is another one, and certainly an area where if we're going to talk about um, manipulating physiological numbers to a very set values, that seems to be the way we're heading at this moment in time. What's the normal? North American practice for mechanical thrombectomy. Is it sedation and local or is it general anesthesia? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I, I should put a caveat asterisk that I do not speak for all of North America, but <laughs> I do have a very biased exposure. <laughs> um, it, it's actually fascinating talking to people about anesthesia for thrombectomy. Um, having, I've done it in two places in two countries, or three places, two countries. Um, and actually it's quite variable, but I would say it's, and actually I um, refer back, I think someone, I think in the review article, they talk about a survey actually that was done about what the practice typically was in these areas. And Canada, I would say is like Europe where we do, I would say the, I think the default is typically sedation or no minimal sedation. GA would be sort of reserved for a more severe cohort or somewhat selected out. Um, I think in the U.S. it was a little more frequent to do a general anesthetic, although I think this sedation is still very common there. Um, and also I suspect is institution specific. And there was huge variability in practice during COVID, for example, when suddenly it was like, what do we do when we think someone could have COVID at any time? Some centers went totally to general anesthesia and some, some places stayed almost exclusively conscious sedation. And then 
Um, I know at, at the institution I was working at, they, we, we sort of went more to general anesthesia, but then we pulled back and went back to conscious sedation because that was sort of the practice in, with, that everyone was familiar with. And I think in general, it's, it's really about familiarity. The literature is very interesting because um, although the preliminary retrospective cohort studies all suggested that general anesthesia was associated with bad outcomes, but we all know that was very confounded literature. And even with adjustment, it's very difficult to um, really make a conclusion about that. But there was certainly trepidation about using general anesthesia. Um, and then with all the randomized trials, they all have some flaws, but they're, they offered a huge um, value to the literature. It, it, it's, I think it's pretty confident that we can say that it's not worse than sedation, that both options are reasonable and likely because speed efficiency and, and institutional practice are so critical to this. I think it really, it's, it's about the institution developing its own protocol so you can be fast. I think that's really critical. I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both, which are well outlined in that review article. Um, and, um, the, there's some meta-analyses as they highlight that really summarize that literature that even suggested that general anesthesia might even be associated or result in slightly better outcomes, which was, I think, a little unexpected for most of us, but may have to do with technical aspects of the procedure. So yeah, fascinating and somewhat controversial topic. Yeah, I, I, I previously looked at this before and I thought the most interesting thing was trying to determine what, what actually constituted a general anesthetic and what constituted conscious sedation, because that's often not reported because certainly a lot of the initial studies were done by uh, were neurology based yep. with, with no with no one from anesthesia represented, certainly in the study design. And it was unclear exactly what was given by who yep. and to what level. So and, you know, I think sedation is the hardest thing in the world to deliver well. Um, yeah. And, 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 and a deep sedation is very <laughs> close to a general anesthetic. Actually, I think even one of the randomized trials, um, the distinguishing factor was the presence of an endotracheal tube, if I recall. And it, which is interesting for us, because I think we would, that isn't necessarily the distinguishing factor, or I doubt that's the mechanism by which the, the, the adverse outcome occurs. It's likely through other factors like blood pressure and and level of, of actually um, anesthesia delivered so yeah it's very interesting it's not it's actually quite difficult to define exactly what the anesthetic was and typically they also didn't standardize the anesthesia that's given even general anesthesia as we know is not standard there's different versions of that in blood pressure management and yeah it's a complex topic which is probably why it's not um, there's some basic principles that everyone should follow, but I don't think there's a sort of a mantra of like, you must do this. And then, so this has gone very quickly. And, and, and then finally, just to finish on a, a paper that's certainly uh, going very well on Twitter is, is the nocebo paper, which was certainly, um, uh, which certainly one of the more interesting ones because I, I hadn't, this hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about this. It, it, it was slightly left field. Ian, you handled this. And I think this was your idea, in fact, that this went in, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was. Um, I heard I heard Alan Sinner talk in Australia um, a, a few years ago, and I was fascinated by um, what he talked about the um, this concept that what we say causes um, may actually cause harm, and um, you know the sort the the, uh, the two classic ones in anaesthesia are um, the you know this might sting, bit of a bee sting, you know when we put the low anaesthetic in. And um, leading on to that from that is that is the effect of propofol as it goes up someone's arm. And um, but then there's even even wider pictures about you know uh, the risk that if we start when we start talking about feeling sick afterwards that we actually predispose to people being feeling sick. 
um, uh, when we talk about pain, we predispose them to um, having more pain. And it's, it's quite a Marmite one, I'll be honest. Um, there are lots of people saying, um, you know, this has changed my practice. I never talk about obesity. I just talk about, you know, finishing off, which is Alan's words. Um, there's even a, um, uh, Tanya Selleck in Australia even had a little, uh, uh, sort of a Twitter debate about what the right words were for propofol going up the arm. Was it sparkly? Was it warm? Was it tingly? Um, or as people said, or is it really, really painful? Because actually for some people, it, it, there's no debate. It, it can be really painful. And, um, there's a whole, issue around consent um if we at what point are we uh causing harm by our consent process versus um are we actually just um or are we uh, should we be you know just brutally honest and upfront about saying yes this might hurt afterwards you might feel sick afterwards but at the risk that that causes that causes harm of itself so really interesting um uh here's a little plug alan's actually talking at the um, at the WSM on Friday, so we're going to hear hear from him, from him. Um, but I think it's definitely one a conversation for people to have, and I think perhaps it's one for people to nudge their practice, not to suddenly change overnight, um, but actually just to think carefully. Just think, could I change the way I talk to somebody? Um, uh, the um, uh, but yeah, I, yeah, it's certainly caused interest in Twitter. Whether that's a I don't know whether it's different across different jurisdictions, whether it's different in Australia, different in North America, different in Sheffield. I don't know. I feel like um, this whole concept, I found this fascinating as well, is um, it's, it's what I would have considered the art of anesthesia, but actually it turns out there's actually quite a science behind the art of anesthesia when you read his article. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it suggests, you know, in some of the other work when they're looking at the physiology of it, you know, a difference in pain scores at a level that we would say was clinically significant. If it was a new drug X, we would sign off on this. So this is potentially a a free, a free, uh, immediately <laughs> immediately implementable intervention that could improve patient experience. It certainly it certainly sounds like it's it's worth considering. And particularly, language is very powerful. And a lot of what we do in medicine, we have a a standard pattern that we deliver at set times, almost done at a spinal level because we've done it so often. And it's, it's, it's useful because it means we always say the same things. We never omit important information and, and we don't stop. And if you try to adjust it, for example, if you're talking to a, um, a colleague who's having surgery and you try to not give it in lay terms, it all goes horribly wrong and you make a complete mess of it. And we make a complete hack of it. And you're gonna, I'm just going to have to... Sp- I'm just going to have to do my standard patient talk because then it works well. But perhaps we just do need to think about what a standard patient talk is. So, so can I can I ask you, um, Matt? The um, uh, what do you um, what do you say when you give propofol to the patient? Um, I don't say anything usually because it's usually there's usually quite a lot of Remy on board. So by that stage. Uh, <laughs> At <laughs> that stage, I'm not sure they can feel much below their neck, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> that's one way to deal with it. <laughs> I'm afraid that's the neuroanesthetic way of dealing with it. <laughs> uh, yeah. used- Sorry, go on, Alana. Oh, I was going to say, I used to say burning, and then I actually changed my language before this because someone had mentioned this. I used tingly, and I don't know if that's, it's just not, it implies as much pain, but I don't know if that's good enough. <laughs> 
Well, I don't, perhaps we shall do what um, Tanya Selick says and say sparkly because it just sounds, it just makes everything sound more fabulous. If I it does. Anything. <laughs> I'm afraid we're out of time. That was a, that was a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for giving up the, an important part of your um, uh, well, evenings for us and wherever you are, Alana. Uh, morning. 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 <laughs> morning. Um, I hope you everyone enjoys the rest of their days. I hope people have enjoyed the chat. And uh, remember, please go to the website or via the Twitter links uh, to download all the articles that are uh, free and will stay free forever. And I hope you find them useful in your clinical practice. Thanks to everyone for this evening. Thank you. Thank you. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>